Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. We are at the end of chapter 1. We are in the sixth day. This is where we have paused. And today we learn of the Imago Dei, which is the famous Latin phrase for the image of God. And here we're talking about the image of God in humankind. Uh, The immediate purpose for the book of Genesis was to give the Israelites, who had just come out of 400 years of slavery, a true sense of God, a true sense of themselves, a true sense of their place in this world. Uh, The purpose of Genesis at the wider level um, is to provide this information, uh, to provide this clarity for us. We see it through the lens of those first recipients um, who had a mission God was going to do a work with Israel to make his presence known on the earth and ultimately to bring Messiah, our Christ, the Christ of the nations. So we return now to Genesis 1. I'll start at verse 26, and I will read down to verse 31. Um, This is the creation of mankind, and we see uh, this important marker that differentiates mankind from animals, from the creatures. Here now as I read God's holy word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Please bow as I lead us in prayer. Father, as we come to your holy word, Please conform us to its teaching. Encourage us by the truth. Set us straight where we may be askew. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please guide us in the reading and the preaching of Scripture. I ask this in these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. Genesis 1, it sets the world straight in its biggest sense. Now, one obvious way that Genesis sets things straight is at least on the initial level. It counters the various myths about creation promoted by the ancient Mesopotamian world and the Egyptians more immediately to the original audience. The pagan myths, for instance, set up dragons as having some kind of a rivalry with one of the bigger gods. They didn't believe in one god, but one of the main gods. And these dragons would come from the sea and have these, these battles with the gods. Yet Genesis says that God created the giant sea monsters, as it says in the older versions, that they're mere creations of God, not rivals to God. They're under God. 
The pagan myth taught the various gods used a series of magical utterances or incantations to create various things, including people. Genesis shows that the God, the living God, Yahweh, created with the word of his power. The pagan myths of the time taught the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Genesis reveals that God made all of these celestial bodies and designed them with purpose, a a big purpose for bringing glory to him, uh, other influences in their own systems, but even for us here on earth, these mark days and seasons. God is sovereign over them. They're not deities. The pagan myths taught the creation of mankind was a mere afterthought to these various gods. In the pagan myths, like the Enuma Elish, God makes mankind in order to provide him, or gods make him to provide him with food. Uh, So the gods only have people so they can serve. Whereas Genesis has the God making man in his own image and then provides food for him. Probably the most pointed pagan myth that is confronted with the text we have before us has to do with the way Pharaoh and many of the ancient kings and monarchs would promote themselves. Pharaoh had multiple images of himself, likenesses of himself, made right there in the capital where he would be. But in order to extend his presence, or at least the sense of his presence, he would make idols of himself, statues, some of which we still have in existence, in cities way outside of his domain. So that a person who lived 150 miles away away from where his palace was, would see a statue or a likeness or an image of him and sense the Pharaoh's presence there. He could extend his reach just by having an image there reminding them of who is in charge. We see in Genesis, God creates the physical world, God who is a spirit. And in creating the physical world as a representation of himself at some level, not one for one, not as a God themselves, but as the image of God, He places mankind as his representatives to rule over and keep the earth that he has created. The main purpose of Genesis, however, was not to simply counter pagan ideology and myths. The purpose of Genesis is far-reaching beyond just that first generation where the recipients got the message originally. It culminates, and we see this linguistically, in the masterpiece that climbs to verse 27 of chapter 1. In the original language, you'll see a building towards verse 27. It's the communicative high point of the whole chapter. Indeed, it sets up the pace for the rest of what unfolds. In verse 27, there's the interpretive pinnacle. And the verse says, So... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the most important takeaway of chapter one. Understanding this truth, mankind created in the image of God, it prompts us about who we are, and it prompts us to pursue our relationship with the one in whose image we have been created. Understanding this truth about who we are, will provide the purpose we need. We know why we've been placed on this earth. We acknowledge and represent God wherever we are placed. 
and all of this can be summarized in a simple proposition. Human beings were created in God's image in order to have the capacity to be His representatives on earth and over the rest of creation. Being in the image of God, this gives human being great worth and purpose, every person. Now, let's examine this passage, verse 26 to verse 31, asking a few questions. First, what does it mean to be in God's image? Look at verse 26 where this is introduced. Then God said, notice the wording, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a couple observations. Image and likeness and let us, the pearl of use. And what does it say immediately after? And let them have dominion. So, read quickly now, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. First, what does it mean by God speaking in the plural, let us make man in our image? Now, there's several possibilities the interpreters have put before us. It could be a combo of these. Some say, like the use of Elohim as the title for God, it's a plural use, that this is accenting the Trinitarian nature of God Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. Certainly a possibility. It has to feed in a little. Some say it's like God is talking to the heavenly court, the angels that are there, the stars, and so forth, and just talking in terms of them as inanimate witnesses in some sense, at least the heavenlies. Let us make man in our image, that kind of idea. I think the better explanation, though, combines what I said first, but also this use of a plural language is just a mechanism to accent the majestic power of God's will. In, in a special act that is about to happen that's different from what has come before. Another feature of differentiating mankind from the rest of creation. Calvin calls it the plural of self-deliberation, and it's applied specifically to the creation of mankind. It's a phraseology that accents God's power. The same language, by the way, appears in the Tower of Babel story when God sees the sin and the shenanigans, the sinful shenanigans of mankind, and says, let us go down and confuse their speech. Secondly, I want you to notice two terms are used, image and likeness. Why are two terms used like this? Well, very simply, on the basis of how these two terms are used in the rest of the Bible, we can be sure they're just synonymous terms. They overlap one another, but it's just meant to really bolster this idea of being representatives of God and His vice regents, if you will. The words image and likeness can be used interchangeably. They mean representation or resemblance. Putting them together, it gives you this, this forceful picture of who we are. Pharaoh might have used an image or a likeness and placed himself somewhere, itself somewhere. Likewise, when mankind is placed somewhere by God's design, um, there's representation, at least of God's presence in those places by His placing of people there and then multiplying them. The terms overlap to make what the scholars say is a mutually amplifying description of the concept of man created in God's image. Derek Kidner says the words image and likeness, they simply reinforce one another. Burkhoff says they're used as synonyms, meaning the same thing, but from a slightly different point of view. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So mankind uniquely reflects God, made in some way to resemble God, though not God ourselves, themselves. God created the creatures uniquely, each of the creatures uniquely, with the pattern devised by God for them, and then he tells them to go be fruitful and multiply after their own kind. But when he creates mankind, he does so in his image and his likeness. Go fruitful and multiply, but he doesn't say after your own kind, just go be fruitful and multiply, because mankind is the image of God. People are distinct from all the other creatures God created. But again, what does it mean to be created in God's image as we continue to analyze this? Well, there's several ways we can describe how we are uh, in the image of God. But just to simplify it into three categories, first of all, mankind is created with rationality. That's what we see when we problem solve, when we acquire and accumulate knowledge. And we have a rational process that we are equipped to go through that's distinct from animal life. Understanding, discerning, problem solving. Mankind, in his and her pre fall state, has tremendous intellectual capacity to the point that Adam is able, he's endowed to be able to name all the animals. We have rational intellectual capacities that are of divine origin. Humankind can create things. Creating is a reflection of the image of God. Mankind can invent things. Mankind can solve huge problems, devise mechanisms, can build. Humankind can harness and multiply energy and things. Incredible cognitive capacities of humanity. Even after sin's entry, we're in awe with the kind of intelligence and the kind of creativity God has endued mankind with. I don't think we can fully imagine the unfallen potential of humankind's rational abilities. This is an aspect of the image of God in man. But also something else. The image of God is revealed in the way we are able to relate first with God, so we recognize the spiritual realities in our, in our ability to relate. God is a spirit, and we relate with Him. God has placed a soul in us. We are a body-soul nexus. So there's a physical world we relate with, and there's a spiritual world, and we are able to relate on that level because we bear the image of God. We find this with each other as other physical, spiritual beings. We experience connections with one another, relationships with other people. We develop affection towards others. This is a capacity that comes as part of the image of God. And God creates man and he creates woman, and they relate. It says it was not good that the man would be alone, so God creates a woman for relationship. In marriage, we have a complementary relationship. This is the ability to relate with one another. This is part of the image of God, mutuality, fellowship personal connections, a sense of family we have with people who are not our biological family, but even within your family. That ability to relate on that level is unique to humankind, the depth that we experience. A couple weeks ago, I'm in this phase of life where every year and multiple times in the year, the, the kids come home from college and then I take them back or they go back. And this summer, several months together, all of us in the same house, 
It's been great. It's been a joy. But we look forward, everyone looks forward to go doing the things they're going to do in the fall. That means for two of the boys, they go away to college. And for the first week, we're excited with them for all the things they're experiencing and starting up again. By week two, we miss them. It's true, we have more food, the house is cleaner, uh, there's less noise, but we prefer that compared to the quiet that comes now. Because we relate. We have connection humanly. People that you've lost in your life, the reason you feel that is you've been made as a relational being with a spiritual capacity, especially because you're a body-soul. You're a different creature from the creatures because you're created in the image of God. There's yet another show of the image of God besides rationality and relational capacity. There's also this matter of moral discernment that God endows us with. God declares things to be good, so he ascribes value to things. We have a sense of this value as God has placed it in our hearts. We have a sense of justice. We can understand the difference between right and wrong. These are things given by God as an expression of his image. We can discern moral value. That's a gift from God. There is a capacity in man and woman at creation to discern what is good or bad. At creation, mankind's heart was given over to God in a state of righteousness. The possession of morality, this is an intrinsic feature of being created in the image of God. We understand morals. At the fall, we know that that moral discernment was lost. In talking about the restoration of this in Christ, Paul gives an important description of God's image that we can recognize as being true at creation. He says in Ephesians, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So to describe our moral discernment or responsibility or understanding, true righteousness and holiness, that's the state of mankind at creation. This is a reflection of God. This is part of what it means to be in the image of God. What's the purpose for all of this? Why did God create us in His image? What is the reason for this? Well, let's look at verse 26, and you'll see how it rolls immediately into this important feature. Verse 26, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion comes right on the heels of let us make man. So it has to do with dominion. Our purpose is dominion or rule or oversight or care, watch care, stewardship. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. God creates and then the creation bearing his image, carries out this oversight, this rule that's spoken of here. Now, when we use the word dominion, it's difficult for human beings because our idea of dominion is attached to kings and queens and monarchies. And the vast, vast majority of examples of this are negative in our minds because of how sinful people carry out these monarchies. So dominion, it can strike us odd when we hear it. But in a state of righteousness and holiness, we're able to execute this dominion wonderfully and beautifully and to the glory of God. And that is the design for people created in the image of God to have dominion over the creation. It's all God's, and He places His vice regent 
man and woman over all of this. That's the capacity that we were created with. In verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, harness it, manage it, administer over it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man to spread out over the earth that he's created and gives man a special capacity to rule over it, to have dominion over it. That's the reason he gave us or created us in his image, to do this work, to have his presence manifested, and all of it would work to glorify the one who created. Roland Ward says, Genesis shows that the humans are God's vice regents of a sort, called to represent God and to rule over his creation and subdue it, to bring out its full potential. Verse 26, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. So have them reflect God and then rule. Vice regency, this means in God's stead, we are to rule. Now, we are not to rule opposed to God. He is our ruler. We're vice regents. He is the regent or the ultimate king, and then he appoints us to be lesser with a small K or Q of queens. That's what we're supposed to be over the creation, administering as he would have us administer to creation. We're given the capacity to do this, to, to rule, to be able to exercise order, to manage, to conserve, to balance This is what the beautiful picture of initial creation gives us, and this flows from who we are as creatures created in the image of God. We're given a level of capacity to carry this out. This is why David, even after the fall and all the observations of the shortcomings that come from a fallen people carrying this out, in Psalm 8, David writes, "'You have given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. He recognized the order of things. And this rule is clearly for the managing and propagating of what God has created. This has to do with maintaining a balance. It's not about exploitation. We are to utilize the earth and its resources with the stewardship of one who owns something, who cares for it greatly. At creation, humankind had this capacity to rule the earth and its creatures. How were we equipped or are we equipped to carry this out? Look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. What we've just seen is how it's able to be done. We, are, we have rationality. We have relational capacity. We have moral discernment. This is the image of God, and this is what equips us to carry out this mission of exercising dominion. But there's something else I want you to notice that is foundational. It's of utmost importance to this text in verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So, mankind in the image of God, and then he divides mankind in half for purpose. Men and women. It's designed for this purpose. Pre-fall, this is very clear to us. Male and female. And this is in order to facilitate man's oversight. God designs two genders. Gender and sexuality, these are gifted designs by God to give human beings the capacity to procreate, subdue, 
exercise dominion. Spread out and exercise this control or this care that God calls us to. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's going to take a lot of energy. Yes, God has that accounted for too. In verse 29, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. In every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. I will give you food all over the earth for this spread that you will undertake. It will be there for everyone. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. I will fill the earth with these plants, with this vegetation, so at the base level, everything depends on that. And I will cover that, so that you can carry out this spread in this dominion. It's a big task, and God provides mankind with everything that it needs. And then his final assessment, just a crowning assessment, verse 31, after the end of day six, or at the end of day six, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The Imago Day. This is the great starting point for the rest of what unfolds in Genesis. Now, if we pause for a moment before we enter into chapter 2, we see the significance of day 7 and what follows, and then we have a focus on the creation of man and woman in chapter 2. How does the reality of people being created in God's image impact your view of people, of others? Well, at the very basic level, human life is sacred because we are created in His image. Now, all life that God has created is important. It has purpose, and we are called to be uh, caretakers, conservers, or managers of these things. But humankind is another level. Humankind is above all other creation because we are in the image of God. So that makes our outlook upon humanity different. It should. The basis for all human rights is that we are created in God's image. People are created in God's image and have value on that basis, worth on that basis. People are created to be representatives in some fashion of God's presence on the earth. Every person in that light has value and worth. So never say to yourself, I am worthless. That is not true. Every person is worthy or is worth has worth. We are unworthy, though, of the great grace God shows us because of sin. That's true. I'm an unworthy sinner, shown God's grace, but I'm not worthless, and neither are you, because you are created in the image of God. Your neighbor has worth and value. The aged have worth and value. Those with diminished mental capacities have worth and value because they are created in the image of God. The unborn have worth and value because they are created in the image of God. The homeless beggar has worth and value created in the image of God. A person who's in a coma has worth and value because they are created in the image of God. 
Members of the Taliban have worth and value because they are created in the image of God. Fill in that person you're upset with right now or the thing you're mad about and just temper that with the fact that they are created in the image of God. There may be reasons to have righteous anger. I'm not saying that. But stop short of cursing them, as James says, using the tongue that will praise the Lord on one side and then curse those who are created in the image of God. By God's grace, give us restraint to recognize people are created in the image of God. And this is what unites all people. Now, there is an obvious problem with the Imago Dei after chapter 1. And I've stepped into it a little bit, but now I want to close with this concept that we will return to because you know the whole of the Bible answers this issue. For all the height of the Imago Dei that we've studied, we have to come into balance. It's a glorious truth, the image of God. It provides us with a sense of value that I've just mentioned. It provides us or compels us to relate with our God who has created us. It compels us to relate with one another, to have relationship with one another. It gives us a purpose for our life when you think of this command to have dominion, subdue the earth. But the problem is, and you all know what it is, brothers and sisters, we struggle to know how it works itself out now, this side of sin. Allow me to give an illustration you see on your insert at the bottom of the page. Perhaps the most well-known and most desirable of all the big block Chevy Camaros is the 1969. Now stay with me on this for a moment. It's the 1969 Yenko 427 pictured here. I tell the boys often, I don't ask for a thanks in life for anything I may have done for you. But if it's some day you guys get together and get me one of these... This is the most perfect car, in my opinion, that pristine picture on the left-hand side. Racer and world-known Chevrolet performance dealer Don Yanko sold 201 of these iconic machines. And they followed his basic plan. This is what makes them so special, in my opinion. He takes an assembly line Camaro, which is pretty great anyways, equipped with a four-speed power disc brakes, aluminum, four-core radiator, heavy-duty suspension, and then pack it with 450 horsepower, the L72 427 engine, and there you have, and let's all pause to appreciate the perfection of this automobile before you. I'm not laughing. That's a car right there. Finished with front and rear spoilers, a cowl induction hood, and adding Yenko 427 badges. There's no mistaking, for, mistaking this for anything else on the road. I went to a, an auto show a few years ago, and I saw one from a distance, or I thought. But I didn't get too far, and I saw there's a 350 in it. It was a fake. There's only 201 of these. Maybe only 200 on the basis of the other picture. And the other picture is our problem. See, I would tell you that pre-fall, creating the image of God, you're like this Yenko 427. Every one of you, beautiful. You purr. You run like a, a beautiful machine that you can't even describe. You have before you a thing of mechanical, internally combusted, horsepower pumping, torque converting, Le Mans blue, rubber burning beauty. And that's you pre-fall. The problem is you're not that. You're the other picture. And so am I. Now you look at it and you say, wait, I know that's a Camaro. I, I know, I can tell, yes, I can tell the image of God exists in us, in humanity. You see glimpses of it, but we ain't what we were. And that's the picture. It doesn't drive anymore. It doesn't do anything except for remind you of that image that is locked in, but it has to be restored. It cannot function like it was so beautifully made to function. 
This is the problem mankind faces. This is the issue. We're incapacitated like this. You see the former glory, but you know something's drastically wrong. The car in the right, believe it or not, still has great value. There is someone, not me and not too many people, that could find a way to bring that to restoration. Derek Kidner says it this way, and I hope it makes connection to this illustration. Kidner says, as long as we are human, we are by definition in the image of God. But spiritual likeness, that part of it, in a single word, love, can be present only where God and man are in fellowship. Hence, the fall has destroyed this component of our likeness, and our redemption will recreate and perfect it. You see, the answer to this marred image is what Christ provides in himself when we are in union with him through faith in him. When we rest in him, not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins, we receive the righteousness of Christ. So there's a restoration that occurs. Now, it's a positional restoration at the moment. God sees us as fully in Christ. But in this life, we still remain very damaged, and God, through sanctification, starts giving us greater sensitivities, and we grow in holiness that helps us reflect, at some level, the image of God in its recreated sense. And it's true, people who are not in Christ, they'll have these flashes of the glory of God and their creativity or the things they accomplish, but they're still so weighed down and broken that the image is nothing but, as Francis Schaeffer said it, they're glorious ruins. You could tell at one time this was meant to be something glorious, but look at how it's being used now so poorly. All this effort put into the wrong things. But in Christ, we can start to see a turnaround in this ultimately building for the day of glory when full restoration is known. And we don't come back just as good as this car on the left, even better, with even better specs. We need this rebirth, this restoration. We all need this. And this is what we're called to as we hear the Bible preached and we think of the full story of what brings out the image of God in us again. Think of the person of Jesus and how being in union with Christ restores that image. In Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes, the firstborn of all creation. So we are in union with the image of the invisible God, Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And his Son is the image of God. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. In 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 3, and we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In Colossians 3, you have put off the old self, literally the old man, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Your salvation began a process called sanctification, making more and more holy, but really you could put it this way, where the image of God becomes clearer and clearer in your life up until glory. It won't be fully realized, but the children of God through Christ, through the ministry of the Spirit transforming you, starts to taste and see a bit of what that image of God looks like as he does this miraculous work through us because of Christ. 
Genesis 1.27 sets an important stage for the rest of our understanding of what God is doing in Scripture, what He's doing now. Human beings, people, you were created in God's image in order to have the capacity to be His representatives on the earth and over the rest of creation. Being in the image of God gives us great worth and purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word, and we think of First John, where You have Your apostle pen, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Lord, we long for Your image to be fully restored and recognized in humanity. We recognize this can only happen um, through the work of Christ applied to people because of this fall that we have suffered in Adam. Now we, we celebrate this redemption we have in Christ. Lord, thank you for your word, the foundations that are being laid in these verses we are studying, the generations now that will unfold from this chapter. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does in guiding and directing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's turn uh, in our response to hymn number 119. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of I Sing the Almighty Power of God. <laughs> 